Hi, I'm here with uh, David Hodes. Uh, David is a uh, co-founding uh, partner and uh, uh, principal of uh, Hodes Weil, a placement agency that uh, uh, you may remember a few weeks ago, we spoke with his partner, uh, Doug Weil, uh, on uh, issues related to capital raising, capital markets, what LPs are dealing with and uh, doing these days. So welcome on board, David. Very good to see you today. How are you? Thanks, Gotti. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, David, um, I wanted to focus our conversation today on what you think is around the corner for the institutional investor world, what GPs and LPs are worried about doing, dealing with, and going forward. And uh, to inform that, we have the benefits of your recent survey. Just yesterday, you uh, conducted a webinar where you released some, some of the early findings of a very large-scale survey that you have conducted with uh, uh, institutional investors. So do you want to take a moment and tell us what, what was the survey about and what did you, sure. not what you found, but what was the method? Yeah, I'll talk about the survey, but I do want to make one point since you made the comment about seeing around corners. Uh, I am still paying the price for our firm having released its annual market letter, uh, market commentary, the first week of February. And uh, I believe we made the comment, and I am the guilty party on this one, who said we're, we're surprised by the remarkable sameness of the forecast this year as in years past. So if you think about the first week of February, worrying about remarkable sameness four weeks later, just uh, our forecasting skills, we're, we're working on it. So just putting it in context. But uh, to talk about the, uh, the, this, this uh, outreach that we did, um, I first wanna say it's not a scientific sampling. We do a survey once a year. I think people are familiar with this uh, allocations monitor we do with Cornell. And in the case of that, we go out to over 3,000 institutional investors. It's all very uh, well organized and, and formulated. Uh, there's a scientific sampling element to it. And it runs through Cornell and they anonymize all the information. Uh, what we did was a little bit more, uh, I would say, in the moment. We had discussions with uh, slightly in excess of 100 uh, institutional investors, no managers. I think we may have spoken to a, you know, some of the consultants with some discretionary capital. But it was really to go to the investors and kind of take their temperature on sort of how they are responding and how they can move forward in a period of time when, you know, there's, there's you know, travel restrictions, we're working from home. Uh, there's a lot of questions about, you know, what the future is going to look like. And we wanted to understand, well, you know, other than anecdotally, how are investors doing? Now, as it turns out, this sampling ends up representing about seven trillion of institutional assets. So it's a big sampling. It's not scientific, but it's, it's significant. Because when we do the scientific sampling with the allocations monitor, it's probably about 12 trillion of assets. So kind of bringing those numbers back to the, you know, to the worlds that matter to us, if it's 7 trillion of assets and figuring the usual 8 to 10% in real estate across the board, it's a significant, uh, you know, subset of the institutional market. The other point I would make is that given that we were speaking to these investors and they were interested in even talking about it, they tend to be the more actively engaged investors and not ones that you know invested in funds years ago and now it's just kind of a legacy that they live with 
So uh, the sentiments were... Um, Hold on, before you go there. Uh, first of all, about predictions. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an economist, uh, so one of the first things we learned is you never tell people what's going to happen or and when it's going to happen in the same sentence or the same paper. So uh, rule number one was violated when you came out and said 2019 is going, 2020 is going to look like this. <laughs> and the second rule is you're much better off saying things than writing things, right? Say it, forget it, write it, regret it. So David, uh, even your advanced age, you have things to learn still. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I don't know where you were in January, but I, I will say when we have conviction, we're, you know, we're prepared to put it out there. And um, I, I live with that one. Um, oh, I agree for it. I also was uh, at an at a industry meeting in, um, I think it was early October, and I was talking about the, uh, the flock of black swans circling overhead at all times and how the industry seemed to be very resilient when you look across the board at all the potential risks. And as we enumerated the risk, I can assure you that pandemic was not one of the risks we were enumerating. And now, you know, what all seems so obvious in hindsight, uh, but I also think it's worthwhile for, the, for, for both my own ability to learn and I think for the benefit of other people in the industry to, you know, be prepared to take positions. And when you're wrong, I'm frequently wrong. I'm happy to let you know. <laughs> I was obviously just half joking about my comments about... Uh, yeah, but history. you're right. <laughs> that, that, it, it, history tells us that usually turns out to be the case. However, I do admire people that do have conviction uh, particularly when those convictions are based on uh, facts, analysis, and, uh, and, and information that they have. And we should all remember when we later, with a benefit of hindsight, find that those comments may have been uh, premature or not even uh, how things turned out, that uh, those things do tend to be impacted by the unexpected. And certainly we're dealing with a collection of unexpected circumstances right now which is why it's so much so so interesting to me to go to the, your investor sentiment survey and kind of see what these hundred people uh, or these hundred institutions uh, are thinking feeling and planning uh, to do so maybe we'll start by saying uh, what is the point of view of these investors with respect to what they're doing right now what 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 are they doing worried about what actions does it lead them to not take and what actions does it lead them to take for the immediate uh, future? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a good question. And as in most things, there's no sort of simple single answer to it. But I would say what we've observed in the industry, and uh, again, we're now talking about the benefit of the last three months, roughly. Um, I think every investor at the outset was either motivated to or asked by CIOs and boards to really uh, do what I call an inventory of risk and exposure. And you know, if we all remember at the very outset, everything shut down. We didn't know how long things were gonna be shut. We didn't really have much clarity. And even now we're still hoping for some more clarity. So it was really, let's assess what the issues are. And I think it meant if you were in the middle of development, you know, what are the implications of the development gets shut down for you know, four, eight, 12 weeks. Um, if you were in the middle of a refurbishing plan, 
and you had tenants that thought they were moving in, what does all this mean? And if you were a lender doing construction draws, what were you going to be doing? So there was this kind of top-down, met-by-bottom-up view, like, let's understand what we've got. Um, I think that one of the lessons that most investors took away from the last financial crisis in 08, 09, was uh, there was an awful lot of uh, investment opportunity in the first 12 to 24 months, and the vast majority of investors missed it. Uh, and it wasn't intentionally, I don't want to invest now, it was a little bit more, we're focused on what went wrong and what are we going to do about it, what shall we do going forward. But I also think that the, the, the market in our industry was in a much worse place in 08, 09 than it was you know, coming into this uh, crisis. Uh, and that has had a lot to do with how investors are responding. Uh, but a very clear theme uh, for investors is that they uh, they don't want to miss the vintage, and uh, I think that has been you know borne out by their engagement. Now the question becomes, well, what does that mean? Are you building a virtual pipeline, or are you prepared to you know make actual commitments? Um, and that's where there's a much wider dispersion of uh, response. Uh, not surprisingly, institutional investors um, need to be very cognizant of process and you know and how things get done and documented, and that inevitably brings us back to some of the more challenging issues of our industry right now, and what I'll call you know kind of the touchy feely aspects of it. If you're buying an asset, you want to walk the asset, um, and you do learn a lot when you walk assets. You want to drive the market and see what you're competing with. If you are hiring a manager, you know, these are long-term marriages and investors want to spend the time getting to know them, not just Q&A, but quality time. And it's, you know, I always used to say with my kids, it's not quality time, it's quantity time because quality time, anyone can behave well for an hour or two. It's, you know, when you can kind of demonstrate consistent behavior and reaction to questions and stress and all that, I mean, that's an important element of the diligence process. Um, last but by no means least, operational diligence, track record diligence, all the things that are a little harder to do now. Uh, we can talk about performance and how people are going to measure performance and this whole kind of rather opaque element of valuation right now. But if you think about investors trying to stay invested, maintain momentum, identify opportunities that will arise from this, uh, you know, this dislocation, you know, they're going to have to reinvent some of the process. And that I think is where we have been focusing. And, and part of the reason we did the survey was really to, I don't want to say, you know, quiz them or test them, but really understand when people say, I need to do, you know, this element of diligence or that, what were they hoping to accomplish there? Uh, so we've I wanted to um, drill down into a couple of topics that you touched on. Uh, one of those topics is uh, given that context, right? So investors today are saying, I don't want to miss the window. Uh, I'm not sure there is a window open yet, so I'm not rushing to do anything, but I'm looking at things and uh, uh, I'm not only focusing on writing the wrong, if there is a wrong in my portfolio. So that, that's the context, right? If, at that point in time, in this point in time, what is their appetite in new relationships, in uh, allocating capital to people with whom, to organizations with whom they don't already have 
a relationship. Who are they looking at? What are they thinking about when they look at them? What are they trying to invest in? And uh, what tips do you have to those who are um, GPs who are not yet uh, in, the, yeah. in the fold for any of these organizations? Yeah. Well, look, um, there are some investors who right now are focused on existing relationships for obvious reasons. It may be new investment programs. It may be strategies that will reflect, you know, future opportunities, but not trying to uh, reinvent their relationships. And that is a very uh, obvious, natural, and understandable response. Did you Where say that, we, that, is the, that covers the majority of investors, or is that just a, a subset, but there's still plenty that are? I think it's I think a significant subset, whether it's, you know, majority or not. Um, you know, don't, don't uh, but it, it's, it's significant. Um, the, uh, there have been some situations that arose early on, I'd say probably more in the public market than the private market where, uh, manager or rather investors did not have a manager that could necessarily pursue, you know, maybe real estate, uh, securities, either debt or equity. And they did move quickly to try to, you know, create some, you know, relationships. The, um, the idea of what you can buy off a screen with a manager that is basically liquid assets versus you know the private equity real estate programs that is really you know the substantial majority of what our industry does uh, big difference in the not so much the kind of diligence but how quickly you can get comfortable right. I remember somebody early in my career saying it should take a long time to make a decision to invest with someone privately because think how long you're going to be married. And, you know, even if, uh, you know, it all goes well, it's many, many years. So make sure you know who your partner is. Whereas when you're buying assets off a screen, a little bit easier, you know, there's liquidity, you can exit if, if things go really you know, contrary to what you'd expect. Um, I think it's probably an understatement to say, you know, launching a new funds platform right now is is you know the quadruple axle blindfolded it's it's a very very challenging thing and i would say we won't see much that said there are some also new asset classes that are going to be beneficiaries of whatever happens here when you talk about seeing around corners it is inevitable that uh technology related to real estate and life science, real estate, those are going to be beneficiaries almost under any circumstance. We can make our own, you know, projections about what happens in traditional office and retail and hotel and, and even logistics, but there are a few things that are just going to be compelling. We have seen investors who have cut corners, and I, I think they've done a lot visual, virtually that uh, they couldn't do, you know, tangibly, and it tended to be focused on those sectors, particularly tech and data centers and to a little bit lesser degree uh, logistics. So, you know, if you were sort of a pundit, you'd say, well, if somebody wants something badly enough, I guess they're going to, you know, cut corners. I don't think that entirely uh, encapsulates this because there are a lot of investors who have just said, as, as tantalizing as it may be to jump in on something here, um, the downside of getting it wrong and then being locked in with something for a long time is it doesn't feel like it's worth the, up, the potential upside. Well, the short term. So uh, the um, denominator effect and the investors you spoke with and 
with whom you interact uh, otherwise, not just in the context of this uh, sentiment survey. Going into the COVID-19 economic downturn, the basic belief was that most plans are reaching, if not at their allocation limits. Uh, and uh, certainly during the first few weeks of, uh, of the downturn, mid to late March, it was a big denominator effect dislocation because of the stock market had corrected so deeply. Uh, since then, it has picked up not quite to previous levels, but quite a bit. So maybe less so today is a denominator effect. But you talked about an interest in alternative investments in asset classes that many investors have had, maybe symbolic, but certainly not significant exposure to. And maybe now they're seeing the wisdom of going deeper into them. Are they able to move money into the, those investments? Are there enough uh, dry powder reservoirs uh, for LPs to significantly invest in cell towers, in data centers, in uh, uh, life science buildings, in uh, cold storage, uh, other storage, as the country and the economy rethink their economic uh, supply chain and uh, uh, information flow world? Well, look, coming into the downturn, I think a couple of things probably worth restating. Number, you know, and I said earlier, our industry as a whole came into this downturn in pretty good position. Uh, let's be clear, we didn't cause this downturn for a change. This was not real estate driven. Real estate, like other things, have been, I don't want to say innocent bystanders, but have been impacted through a, a major dislocation. It wasn't oversupply, it wasn't too much leverage this time around. So investors, I think, are more comfortable with how real estate has responded and will respond. The other important thing to keep in mind, there was a lot of liquidity coming into this and a lot of dry powder. Some already allocated to funds that have not been drawn and some just you know, we, we, you know, the allocations monitor every year, you know, there's a 150 basis point gap between the uh, hoped for allocation uh, of this, you know, 12 trillion of assets versus the actual. Um, so I think what's going to happen here is that dry powder is not going to go away, but we have not seen in you know, kind of a big rush to slow down because of denominator effect. Now, I am not, you know, a public equity guy, and I watch what's going on, and I am still rather surprised, and I, I haven't looked today. I know yesterday was not a good day for public equities, but frankly, I was surprised why there were so many days that were good for public equities when you, in fact, see conditions on the ground. And maybe the biggest head-scratcher of all was that Hertz, after filing bankruptcy, the stock rallied. Right. And in my world, I'm not sure what you're doing because I mean, my old assumption was if you're the public equity guy in a bankruptcy, you know, you're like last guy to get paid. You're about to but get wiped out, right? <laughs> so you know, investors are saying, okay, well, they, they don't, they they haven't been told to slow down. The overall effect of the stock market correction has not really impacted them, but part of the market is being driven by the fact that so much uh, historically high levels of capital is now available. Um, I think to me, the bigger issue is less about the denominator and more about the availability of this capital that can almost have a self-correcting mechanism so that things should be repricing, but there's so much capital teed up to do opportunistic investing that before the opportunities get there, it's, it's almost been you know, priced away. Um, 
there, I, I, and again, I think the, the bigger challenge in a way is not so much the capital, but the really availability of quality investments. Uh, you know, there's going to be an, a significant increase in, you know, data centers and potentially cell towers. Um, it's going to take time because, you know, they don't, they don't go up overnight. They go up quickly because they're, you know, they're easy to build, but you still need, you know, power, fiber, um, water, and, you know, community approval to go in. So uh, I, I think that the capital will go in. I, I, don't, I don't think there's going to be a big kind of bottleneck of trying to get capital into the market. Uh, I think, well, I like to think that it's going to be done on a kind of reasonably paced basis. Uh, look, my, my gut tells me that, you know, we haven't seen the worst of the equity market performance. And again, I, I haven't looked at this at the tape today, but it wouldn't surprise me if after yesterday we see another you know, leg down. Um, I, I, I think it's going to have to go for a really long way, though, before we start to see that impacting, you know, ultimately, you know, whether there's still capital available. The bigger consideration in some ways is, you know, investors are assuming they get their distributions. And I don't mean the income distributions, but, you know, a lot of the, you know, the industry now is in vehicles that buy, fix, and sell. Many of the investments you make in the future are predicated upon getting, you know, that old money back pretty soon. And I, I think that, you know, some of these realizations may play out a little more slowly. That in itself may, you know, bring allocation levels up a bit. So that even if a lot of new money doesn't go out, they're not getting the expected return on some of the older investments. That's interesting. So that may affect uh, availability. Uh, screen froze. Ability of uh, capital for new fresh investments. So, David. Are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Sorry, uh, yeah, that, uh, you you froze for a moment. Did I? Yep, we did. Uh, we, we both did. We'll, we'll edit that out. No, no problem. Okay. All right. Why don't you start that question again? Right. So um, there may be a period of time where we have a uh, fewer redemptions coming in, so money coming into the uh, LPs may may slow down, and that will potentially create some liquidity crunch on their capital availability for uh, new investments. Uh, that's fine. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure you're right about that. So we'll see how that sorts out. That's maybe a little bit uh, to be played out over the next 12, 18 months. But investors have signaled to you that they would like to favor opportunistic investing right now, to take advantage of uh, inefficiencies, dislocations, uh, troubled situations. We have found, if you believe everything you read and everything you hear, that there are very few dislocations right now, uh, and that it may be a little while before um, we exhibit, experience those. So, are investors uh, itching to get into whatever is available today, or are they saying, you know, if, if there isn't, there isn't, but we'll continue to stay the course on our search for those strategies, but not allocate capital to maybe lower yielding, uh, what might be otherwise considered to be core, core plus type investing. Yeah. yeah, you know, I think, you know, given human nature and muscle memory, there, there is this sense that when there's a, you know, a, a 
truly a calamitous series of events such as we've been experiencing the last several months, that there ought to be a big risk premium now for making long-term illiquid investments. And it seems logical, but the challenge is that is not necessarily being borne out on the ground. Uh, we saw early on at the front end of the crisis, uh, you know, a quick repricing of, you know, real estate debt securities. It was not so much the quality of the underwriting, it's simply, you know, leverage finance. You get a, you get a margin call when, you know, the value of the collateral is lower. So other than that, it's kind of waiting for shoes to drop. And we do know, and investors are underwriting many of these types of programs, trying to just position themselves with good partners, either in funds or programmatically, to pursue, pursue either diversified or very targeted strategies for what they think will be the, uh, the distress around the corner. Uh, some things are obvious. Even before the pandemic, people were looking at that in the hotel sector. They were starting to do that in the retail sector. I think we're going to see that more broadly based because it's uh, it's still not clear how this all you know sorts itself out when we are back to work. The so-called new normal, or as one of my kids likes to call it, the new abnormal. Um, investors are motivated to you know, earn these high returns that they think are appropriate given the distress. Uh, I've heard other investors say though that at the end of the day, if they are able to improve their, basically their core portfolios, their long-term strategic holdings in the portfolio to acquire better assets at a slightly better basis, that might not be a bad in, you know, end, end result as well. It, it is a quandary and you, you know, you've been doing this a long time too. With interest rates where they are, why we all just assume that 20% is, is the magic number. And I know for a lot of people that's, you know, that's kind of built into the program and it's, it's what they're designed to do you know, funds with. Um, but I am beginning to think that given availability of capital, the amount of liquidity that central banks have you know, created, you know, is, is it realistic to say that all this, uh, you know, distress is going to reprice to a 20% return? And I think the answer is, you know, probably not. And um, that's a very insightful comment. So uh, it's one of those things you may regret a year from today, right? <laughs> but, but I think that uh, I, I, I do see, I do see the, the, the wisdom in that comment that the amount of capital available and at least so far, the small amount of distress that is even technically there right now may be being propped by regulation and by deferral and by deferment and by um, you know, forgiveness of, uh, of interest payments and subsidies and stimulus and PPP money and all that stuff. But even with all that, when you peel away from it, most assets, depending on how quickly they'll recover, should be able to kind of bridge over this, and most sponsors should be able to bridge over the a three or six month disruption. So we'll see how it comes out the other end, but potentially with the exception of retail and maybe some other asset classes, most real estate perhaps will not have a uh, massive amount of disruption. And therefore with this much liquidity, there will be somebody who's willing to pay a penny more uh, for a number of rounds and kind of bid things up from 20% return down to 10% return or 5% return or whatever ultimately settles in. So 
and, and, and that is also born, uh, maybe even supported by another one of your findings, which, as I recall, that investors, generally speaking, are rather optimistic about their outlook for the real estate asset class over the next 12 months or so. So on the one hand, they would like to get 20% returns. On the other hand, they think the asset class is going to do very well. Is this time different? Because I don't believe that was the sentiment back in 2009 or back in 1991 uh, at the depth of those disruptions, which I think this is more or less like those. People didn't sit there saying it's going to be terrific in a year from today, so let's go and invest a lot of money in it. That was part of the reason why prices corrected as deeply as they did. So is this time different? Well, it certainly feels different. I mean, if you think about prior, you know, corrections, it was typically driven by something in the credit market or multiple things in the credit market or oversupply or, you know, recession driving down demand. Here you had an industry that was actually in pretty good shape. You know, there were some pockets of, you know, supply demand imbalance, but leverage was generally manageable. The leverage products we understood a lot better. Um, and there was, you know, just, it, I want to say equilibrium, but, you know, there was, there was strong take up for most types of space. Um, and so out of, out of the blue, everything stopped. And, you know, when the train that's going 70 stops immediately, it may look the same on the outside, but people inside got pretty shaken up. So we do have this anomaly of people in, this, in our you know, Q&A saying, we want to invest and we want to do distress, and we really want to build our industrial and logistics portfolio. Okay, well, I think we're going to wait a long time to see distress pricing for any good quality industrial or logistics assets. So there's clearly you know, an inconsistency there. And I, I have a feeling that, uh, as we've seen in past downturns, situationally, you know, you can find things that are interesting and there's always some way to make a higher yield um, if you have the skills and the sourcing. But I also don't think that this is going to be a 19, you know, 91, 92, where buy anything, it's going to go up in value sort of thing. It, it's just, it just feels very different. And, and really, one of the fundamental differences is trying to figure out, and you know, I've probably said this too many times to too many people, what does demand look like when we're back on? Because that's a big question. Somebody said, oh, I'm going to buy an office building today, and, and the cap rate on this would have been four, but I'm going to buy it at like a seven. And I said, well, that sounds great, but tell me what the NOI is going to look like in 12 or 24 months, and that seven may be actually more like a five. So this is the challenge we have, is not really understanding yet what demand model we should even be thinking about across the board, whether it's office or retail or industrial even. Um, and, and then there, you know, and, and it's been surprising. I'll, I'll give you an anecdote and I'll, I'll stop for a second, but we, you know, we were working with a company that does student housing and early on, you know, I think most people assume this is, you know, student housing is gonna be in crisis given that universities were shutting down for some period of time, right at the prime time when they would be leasing space for next year. And with student housing, if you don't lease it at the front end of the school year, you often have a year of downtime. So there was this general sense that, oh, well, that's the 
bad news for student housing. And, and now we hear that every university and college trying to reopen knows they have to de-densify their, their resident halls. So they're scrambling and they're talking to everyone and anyone about space adjacent to campuses, master lease, buy, joint venture, whatever. So in the space of six weeks, student housing went from being potentially one of the most significantly impacted asset classes to suddenly being in demand, if not by the students themselves, at least by the universities that need to house the students. So the limitations of seeing around corners, you know, again, it comes back to, well, tell me what demand looks like and I can tell you what the future holds. Right. I won't be surprised to find out uh, towards the end of this year that assets are trading at values that are lower than they were going into the uh, downturn, but at cap rates or economic metrics that are very similar to the way they were underwritten before, uh, just based upon new assumptions or even new facts on the ground about what income looks like, what the demand looks like. So I think uh, it's very insightful there. Uh, so if you step back from the conversations with the, the LPs and you think about what we should expect beyond the current lockdown, beyond the current pandemic, uh, what does the new normal you think uh, will be based upon your sentiment surveys and your conversations with players? What does new normal look like uh, 6, 12, 18 months from today? Well, when you say new normal, do you mean from the perspective of allocating and deploying capital? Yes, correct. Okay. Good, because that one I have at least a little idea. If you ask me how much space for an employee in an office building in the future, I'm still trying to figure that one out. We have um, another conversation with Andy Cohen coming up next week on that topic. So we'll okay, wait for I'll, that. I'll you go ahead and talk about what you know something about. Yeah. Uh, my sense, and again, it's, you know, born out of, you know, doing this for, you know, 40 plus years. Uh, Investors are open for business, and I, I mean that in the truest sense. And they're not going to do you know, everything with everybody, but they want to stay fully invested. And I think there is a general understanding that uh, you know real estate has an important role to play in the portfolio as both a total return generator, but maybe more importantly, contributions to you know cash flow. And you know, pre pre low interest rates, real estate kind of had a free pass. You know, generated income, that's great. But if you didn't, you know, you were doing a total return play. I, I think that the considerations of having to have real estate contribute to cash flow means that real estate is going to continue to be pursued by you know large institutional investors. Uh, there may be some who will say, well, I'm more of an alternatives investor than an income oriented investor. And they may say, well, you know, maybe, you know, better opportunities in venture capital or, you know, the recovery of the energy sector. But for investors, and this, I think, represents a big subset of investors, large institutions who rely on real estate to generate a total return as well as an income yield. I think they're going to try to be back to it as quickly as possible. And the challenge is still on for quality partners and quality assets. Um, we've been saying this for a while that one of the challenges in our world these days is that capital for at least the last 20 years has been proliferating faster than quality places to do it. So, you know, the capital is proliferating faster than economic activity and economic growth. Therefore, if you want to make sure that you're putting your capital in safe hands in the right places, 
you've got to be active and pretty aggressive uh, to, you know, kind of maintain it. It doesn't, you know, there's, there's a lot of competition among investors. So you spoke earlier about maybe more awareness and interest in some of the new alternative categories like data centers and uh, cell towers and life sciences. Are there any other new categories that you think are going to be more favored by institutional investors? And conversely, are there any asset classes or subclasses that might see even less and no need to go back to retail and hotels? We only know about that. But what, what, what other changes, even if they are minor, do you see? Yeah, um, I think that there are, uh, you know, still look, the demographically driven strategies are still going to be uh, important. And I think that, for example, you know, we are working with someone who's in the uh, senior, um, senior housing business. And uh, obviously during the worst of the pandemic, just the biggest concern was, you know, just literally issues of life and death. Um, I think that that is likely that the, the senior housing and I would link to that skilled nursing segments are both likely to, um, uh, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to stop. I need to plug in here before the battery dies. Sorry. Okay. No problem. We'll, we'll pause. Yeah, please pause. No problem Zoom. at all. Zoom chews up batteries. You probably figured that out yourself. That's okay. Um, try to pick up at a point. Uh, let's let's uh, let me go back and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the skilled nursing senior senior. So uh, we we have seen investors now looking again at the uh, senior housing and I, I would say some of the other kind of skilled nursing and related to that. Given that uh, what one of the things that the pandemic certainly underscored was the challenges of caring at home. And I think that uh, many operators of uh, senior housing are finding there's a lot more reverse inquiry, notwithstanding some very you know scary headlines about what was happening in some of these homes. Um, the, um, the the challenge right now for a lot of investors is they're most comfortable with things like office, retail, apartments, and industrial. And it's a difficult time to start suddenly, you know, relearning new asset class or learning new asset classes because your ability to go out and do that is somewhat impaired. Uh, but I also think that investors want to diversify. There is a concern about office, obviously. Uh, we haven't really touched on that. Um, you know, there's a big debate whether people want to work from home or want to go back to the office. I think it all is a function of, well, do you have to commute to get to the office? And if you're at home, do you actually have a comfortable place to do your work without you know, your kids climbing all over you all day long? So we know that office has to be you know, rethought. Uh, the initial theory was, well, this can't be good for office. On the other hand, now that everybody's de-densifying, it may not have a, as much of an impact on overall demand as we thought. Uh, we do know some major companies here in New York are now thinking about maybe going back to more of a hub and spoke operation where they have the main facility in the downtown, but then they have regional facilities to provide the flexibility to their workforce that doesn't want to commute for one reason or another. Uh, at the end of the day, more flexibility probably means that offices will be continued to be used, but in a different way. And that costs money and that costs money to the owner. The tenants hopefully will pick up the cost, but even that, if it does happen, that there will be the freight, it'll be additional investment. Uh, offices in some ways are shaping up to 
to maybe have the same pattern we saw in the last 20 years with regional malls, which some became totally obsolete, some did not become obsolete, but they all required significant investment, reinvestment, and rather frequently in capital upgrades and in uh, physical improvement that uh, uh, were costly. And not all of them were picked up by tenants and by rental income. So it'll be interesting to see where office goes over the next uh, 10 or 20 years. But it's a long, it's a long trend. What's happening now perhaps is, I think, accelerating rather than necessarily redefining the direction that the world was going to go in anyway in office. You know, the one thing that has been, and this really predates, uh, you know, the pandemic, um, increasingly investors are focused on kind of, well, regulatory changes. And some of it, I would say, is driven by populist pressures. So when you start seeing things like, um, you know, changes in, in kind of rent rule, rent control rules, uh, when you start to see... I forget the name of the proposition in California where in, in San Francisco rather where you know, if you own retail space you got to fill it up or you're going to pay a penalty. So I think investors are starting to step back and say are there going to be is there going to be a regulatory overlay that's going to change the value proposition here? You know, if you're if you're coming at it from a populist perspective it's okay to say well let's just take money away from, you know, the rich landlords but in fact, you know, it's it's a lot of retirees depending upon uh, you know, the income and, and value created by the landlords effectively. So that I don't think is going to go away. And in fact, given what's going on, you know, in real time right now, there is going to probably be more focus on how to share the wealth more uh, equitably. And that may mean that it's a little less juicy to be an apartment owner in a dense urban environment. And that may... Is that is that affecting? Is that already impacting uh, LPs' decisions about who to invest with and where to invest? Uh, maybe less so about who to invest with, but where and how to invest. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you think about take multifamily, you know, the focus has been on for a lot of investors urban coastal markets where there was going to be expectation of you know strongest demand. Well, that also happens to be where there's probably been the most activity that is starting to impact your ability as a landlord to charge the rent that you would like to charge. Right. So there had already been a move to maybe diversify away from you know, just these coastal markets. I think that that trend is going to necessarily accelerate. Um, it's, it's hard to see how it won't. Now, whether investors take that up as their cause or not is you know, still to be determined. Um, but it's, it's way beyond just making sure they're ESG compliant at this point. Right. This is really interesting. Thank you for, for sharing those thoughts with us. I'm curious about, uh, so far we've spoken primarily about investing in America by American companies. I would love to know what your sentiment survey had identified as new trends, new patterns with respect to international investing, both. U.S. institutions investing abroad and uh, offshore institutions in investing in America. What what's new? Yeah, what's new? Well, it's interesting. It's 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 unfolding rather quickly. Needless to say, because the rest of the world is not exactly uh, simple to understand either. So there was an interesting kind of thematically I saw in early May as Asia was starting to open up 
quite a few investors here in North America and some in Europe were saying, we're, we're going to focus on Asia because it's coming out first. We can sort of see how it goes and there's going to be more opportunity there while the rest of the world's still figuring it out. And I think that maybe it was more um, aspirational and optimistic because ultimately Asia opened up ahead of us, but they've been having plenty of challenges. And, you know, you look at what's going on in Hong Kong, whether it's, you know, the protests or, you know, the inability to completely tamp down, you know, the, uh, you know, the, yeah. the pandemic, that, you know, it's a little bit of kind of fits and starts. Right. But I would say that uh, in general, uh, most North American investors don't feel they have to go very far afield to find opportunity. Um, now, again, speaking in broad strokes like this, there are many Asian investors who feel that the U.S. is going to be a big opportunity and they're positioning themselves, whether it's just aligning in uh, programmatic ventures or committing to um, you know, more diversified programs. There is a sense that the U.S. will, you know, generate a lot of opportunities. Europe is somewhere in between the two. Um, you know, traditional assets in Europe um, seem to be trading. Um, and while there are some challenges, uh, given that, uh, you know, again, the demand is not entirely understood, um, you know, we hear, we hear stories of assets being put on the market and, you know, competitive bidding, you know, some of it's logistics, but even, you know, we, we hear about a large office portfolio in Germany, we hear about residential portfolios. Um, it, it doesn't seem to have had the same uh, kind of kind of grind to a halt feel that we've had here in the U.S. Most U.S. investors, though, and I should say North American, they're not that focused on you know, making new commitments offshore. I think some of them have already, and so they figure it'll get captured that way. But other than this general sense that, you know, at least a month ago that Asia is ahead of us, and so therefore maybe take some time to study that, not seeing it as a, as a powerful driver for what they're doing. Gotcha. For those Asian capital sources that are trying to get into America, North America, United States, what are they what are they looking for and how do they intend to fulfill their ticket orders if you will uh, what what kind of gps are they going to be aligning with yeah um look i think it i think it's across the board a little bit less focus on um some of the demographic strategies at least the ones with the beds in them um, so i like to think of it um very strong demand globally for for data centers for one, because that it, it sort of appears obvious in hindsight now why we didn't all do that before, um, but also you know traditional commercial, um, you know office I should say. Um, to me, the question is going to be uh, you know hotels are always appealing, and especially you know a lot of internet institutions around the world have, have made a lot of money and have focused on the hotel sector, and I. I think that it's, it's maybe starting to position itself for an interesting recovery. Now, I may not get out there and say, go buy you know, some big conference center hotels. We can all opine on the next time. We'll be at a PREA conference together with a, a thousand of our closest friends. But I do think that travel will restart. And we're already seeing it here. People want to travel again. Business travel may take a little longer to catch up. Uh, but I, I think that uh, some of the offshore capital is starting to think about the hotel sector. Great. That's terrific. David, last comment. Uh, last question for you is, can you comment a little bit about 
how uh, Otis Weil has uh, fared during the downturn and over the last 60 days, has anything changed? Um, well, I think everyone is eating better because we don't rush through meals and we're eating a lot more food at home. So I think our, our health has all improved. But uh, on a more serious note, uh, I think most people have found that it's, it's, it's easy to do certain things in the conversion from in the office to work from home. Uh, well, for most of us, hasn't been that big of a challenge. Again, I, I, I don't have you know, kids at home, so I, I know it's, it's less challenging for me right. to be doing this than for others who have children at home who are young or need supervision for schooling or whatever. But um, you know, our business has an interesting diversification to it. We do, you know, obviously, we're best known for you know, the capital markets for capital raising, but we have an advisory business as well. And we have a workout and restructuring element of our business. So we have been rather busy. Now, I always say, well, busy is good, but you know, busy doesn't always pay the bills. And I think that's still the question is, uh, you know, how much of, of everything we're all doing is, is ultimately actionable? Does it get to a certain point and then inevitably have to stop? Um, I think that uh, there is strong momentum in the industry to keep moving forward, and we clearly benefit from that because we're involved in a lot of unique situations. Um, if I were a traditional asset broker, I'd be a lot more concerned because I think the, you know, the, the travel bans make that a very difficult business where you know, organizing programmatic ventures and aligning LPs with with new GPs for the future, it's it's a little bit more straightforward. Um, I also have a view that you know there's been a ton of uh, you know M and A activity in our industry, and it it kind of it kind of went on hold for a while over the last few months. Obviously, a big topic at the last Prio we talked about. I think that um, this is likely to precipitate more strategic activity. Uh, there were. And I, again, I'm speaking generically. I think most managers felt pretty good about their liquidity positions um, coming into the downturn. It was a pretty active market. I know many of them predicated their commitments to their next funds based upon the expected realization from their last funds. And we, we just know that, you know that the, it may be money good or not. That's really not the point. We do know it's going to take longer. So that may just mean that some some managers are going to have to do something of a strategic nature sooner than they might have otherwise thought. You know, I don't I don't think it's good or bad. I think it just you know, kind of kind of is. But look, from our perspective as a business, um, in a way, markets with equilibrium are almost the hardest ones to to manage through. Um, you know, we designed the business to be. You know, when times were bad, we could help out in workouts, and when times were good, we could you know help. With capital raising and we're seeing kind of both at the same time which is a little bit unusual uh, but I also think that you know there's so much going on in a very diverse and, and robust industry that you know, there, there's lots to be done and I don't know about you but I, I find that the uh, the intensity of the workday now is far greater than it used to be and in part it is you know the, the zooming effect I was joking earlier today I feel like I've watched eight to ten hours of television by the end of the day and it kind of it, it drains your brain a little bit. We used to take 15 or 20 minutes between meetings to walk somewhere or, you know, go get a coffee or anything. And now it's just, you know, they line up, you know, you zoom to zoom to zoom to zoom. And so the, uh, you know, the intensity of the work is, is significant. 
we uh, kind of had this funny conversation amongst our whole team is we want to make sure that they actually book and take vacations this summer. You know, we haven't been on vacation for three months and no one should feel that going on a vacation now is some kind of a sign of weakness that, you know, you're actually not just working all the time. I think there is this general feeling that if you're not in the office, you're not working. I think we're getting over that. I hope so. I hope so too. When we spoke with Doug, which was roughly your partner, Doug Weil, a couple of months ago, we, um, which was roughly about, yeah, I guess about two months ago, he mentioned that at the time, uh, your book of business kind of was in the suspended animation mode where a lot of the things you were working on uh, were sort of placed on, on hold, so to speak. Uh, I'm curious whether that has begun to thaw out or are you still, particularly yeah. in, the, in the capital placement business, uh, beginning yeah. to see some, some action, some loosening up? Yeah, you know, look, I think when he, he made that comment, for example, you know, we were working with, uh, you know, New York City office manager, student housing, senior living, uh, a development program, logistics development in Europe. So when you're looking at those things in the context of we don't even know when we're going to be going, you know, out the door. Right. Very complicated. That's why my comments about student housing, you know, we just figured, well, all right, we'll just sort of let that go sideways for a little while, but I think a lot has changed. Um, we have a lot to learn still, and I, I, I don't mean, every, I mean, we always have a lot to learn, but there are, uh, again, I hate to keep coming back to it, but understanding future demand patterns is what's going to really drive you know, progress going forward. Look, if you think about it, I don't wanna you know, go down this particular rabbit hole, but our industry has operated for a long time on the basis that we have open-end funds where you can rely upon the values on the way in and on the way out. And I applaud the industry for putting this on hold right now because I don't know that somebody leaving at a March 31 value is going out at the right price. And if I was the person remaining behind holding the residual value, I might feel like we just, you know, we just sent some value out the door. So these are the, these are the really essential issues that have to be sorted out. I assure you, POTUS while alone is not going to figure these out. But as you look across the industry, there are these kind of just bumps that we are going to have to absorb and, and understand, you know, how, how do you fairly treat these situations? So there, I will say to Doug's point, there are some days I feel like we are in some alternative reality, like a parallel universe. And then there are other days where it just feels like, well, same old, same old, but you know, I'm home in a more comfortable shirt and you don't know if I'm wearing pants or shorts. So. <laughs> I don't know and I don't really care. I don't really want to know, I get it. But, but it is nice to see you in a golf shirt, not in coat and tie, and uh, you do look great. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it because you sound good, uh, you look great. Thank you, Thank David, you. for sharing your wisdom, experiences, the results of the sentiment survey. As always, it's super insightful to talk to you. I learned a lot from the conversation, and I hope to have you back on our show maybe in a few weeks to see how things change. In the meantime, please be well and take care of yourself and your family, and don't forget to hug all those that you care the most about. Great. And Gadi, thank you very much for inviting me. I really like what you're doing here with these webcasts. Uh, capturing a moment in time is, uh, I guess this is like writing it down though. You're going to be able to tell me all the things right. that I forecast. 
I've been living with that for a long time, and I'll, I'll, I'll have conviction about what the answer is in the future, I promise. Thank you for your insights and good wishes. Bye-bye, David. Thank you. Bye.